Hello and welcome again to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. This week, as I record this, we once again made a successful landing on the surface of the planet Mars, leaving behind another Mars rover to send us valuable data for future research. The first pictures were absolutely stunning, and I was especially pleased to see that they managed to capture a good image of Bernie Sanders, resplendent in his mask and mittens, on the surface of the red planet. Bernie has been one of the top memes to circulate social media in the last few weeks, and a real example of modern folklore in action. At least, for most. Digital folklore is something of a controversial topic still, and some people still deny that memes such as this are folklore at all, because they aren't old, or for other reasons. My guest today gave a brilliant TED talk on this very subject, which I'll link to on the Folklore Podcast website for anyone who wants to watch it. Dr Lynn McNeil is an assistant professor of folklore in the English department at Utah State University. She holds a PhD in folklore from Memorial University of Newfoundland. Her research interests include legend, belief, fandom and digital culture. She serves on the boards of the Western States Folklore Society and the International Society for Contemporary Legend Research, serves as reviews editor for the journal Contemporary Legend, and is the co-director of the Digital Folklore Project. She's made several appearances on national television and radio programmes, and she's the author of the popular textbook Folklore Rules. Lynn and I had a long conversation about the subject of digital folklore. Here is what we thought. So, Lynn, welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I've been wanting to get you on here for a little while, and it's taken a while to organise with one thing and another, but I am delighted that you are here now. Welcome. Thank you so much. I am delighted to be here. I know I've, you know, heard other folklorists who have been on and all of this, and I love spreading the word about folklore. So I appreciate you having me here. Excellent. It's it's a joy. I'm going to ask you first... Before we go any further, to just for for people who are not familiar with your work, just say a little bit about uh, how you work with folklore, how you got into this subject, and what what interests you about it. Oh my goodness, that right there is like an hour's worth of conversation. I <laughs> I'm always so enthusiastic talking about folklore, but um, so I I work as an academic folklorist. I run the folklore program at Utah State University, and I love teaching about folklore. I actually really love the basics of folklore. I did all three of my academic degrees in folklore at different institutions. And I think that gave me a real appreciation for the basics, for the the discipline, the entry point to the discipline, what it means for someone to discover what folklore is. So I've also written a textbook, Folklore Rules. That is a super basic introductory level hopefully fun and easy reading textbook for people. Um, I've also published different book chapters and articles, I think sort of similarly on topics that I think are engaging and sort of broadly interesting as well. And then I also get to hang out sometimes on the travel channels, paranormal caught on camera and talk about folklore through that venue, which is a whole other story, but also sort of that outward facing I just want to tell the world about folklore because it's this thing that we all know that we don't know we know. 
And I describe it to my students as being like showing up in a Shakespeare class and finding out that you didn't know it, but you already have read all of Shakespeare's plays. Like you're ready to get into the good stuff, to start talking about the analysis and the meaning and the significance of this. And you already know a whole bunch of the material. How did you get into it? You, you get others into it now, but what, what made you get into the subject in the first place? You know, the stuff of folklore was always something that interested in me. I loved fairy tales and I loved urban legends. I loved ghost stories. I was obsessed with the movie Ghostbusters as a kid. I wanted to grow up and be Dr. Peter Venkman. Um, but I also loved other stuff that I didn't even know was folklore. So like the hypnosis games that you played with your friends growing up at sleepovers and holiday customs and traditions and things like that. I've just always been interested in those ways that we make meaning in everyday life. And I didn't know that they all fell under this umbrella of folklore studies. And so I was an undergraduate student at UC Berkeley and I got lucky. I took a class on fairy tales. Little did I know I was at a school with a folklore program with an amazing folklore faculty. And it was the fairy tales that brought me in and it was everything else that kept me. It was like a, whoa, you know, how these things are connected is what makes them interesting. And that's really, I think, what sucked me in was how can all these disparate things all be described by the same word, folklore, and and yet be so diverse? And that, I think, kept me going. And that, I think, also kept me interested in sort of those introductory orientations to the field. I'd like to talk to you today about a controversial aspect of folklore in some respects. Uh, uh, and that is digital folklore. And it's something with which I ascribe your name quite a bit. Uh, firstly, because the students on my Introduction to British Folklore course all watch your TED Talk on this subject as part of my introductory module. Uh, and, and that's just wonderful and they all love it. Uh, also because of books that you've had a hand in either editing or writing for, which which have come over my desk one way or another, such as the Slenderman book, um, such as uh, Folklore and Social Media, which arrived for review recently. So we'll be talking about that more on the website in due course. Uh, and it's a controversial area, I think, because some people refuse to accept that digital folklore is part of folklore. And I'll come to that in a moment. But I'm going to ask you to define two terms for me first. First of all, what is folklore? Oof. I love this question. Folklore, there's two ways to answer it too. There's the most common way and then there's the academic way. And the most common way that we define what folklore is, is with an enumerative definition. We give examples of it. You know, folklore is urban legends and fairy tales and holiday customs and handmade objects and internet memes. That one always catches people off guard. But that's, I know when my students are taking a folklore class and they go home and tell their families and their families say, what is folklore? They, they list these examples, myths, fairy tales, legends, you know, the, the things we think of as folklore. The academic definition, of course, requires us to find the common denominator that all of those things share. And what all of those things really share is that they are cultural expressive forms, whether that be a narrative or a customary behavior, or a conceptual belief, or even a material object that is both dynamic and traditional in its manifestation. So what that means is that there's no single correct version or original version that we hold up as right 
or, you know, better or somehow more important than all the others. Every version of a fairy tale, every version of an urban legend, every way that we celebrate a particular holiday in our families is equally correct. And yet for all that dynamism, for all that, that informality, that lack of institutional anchor, there's no copyright, there's no intellectual property we still do recognize them as the same thing. So there's also that traditional element, the conservative element that gets passed on that tells us, hey, wait a minute, that's the same story. The details might be different. The setting might be different. Some of the implications might be different, but at its most basic level, I see that that's the same story that's being told over here. And what that does is it gives us cultural forms, which we already understand the value of. We understand why we study literature and art and music and all of those things. But when literature, art, and music manifest on this informal word of mouth, person to person level, it becomes this exceptional barometer for what a given group of people are caring about, are invested in, are, are anxious about. And so we can use folklore that's actively circulating to understand ourselves better on a really fundamental level. And isn't this one of the most infuriating and at the same time fascinating aspects of folklore as well? So, so you look at history and you can go, oh, great, OK, I can pin down when that event happened and why it happened and who was involved and and everything about it normally. Uh, if it's very old history, then perhaps not everything, but the archaeological record will tell us this and the other. Folklore, we can't even find the origin for many things. But we see these similarities tracked back through through time. Mm-hmm. And that is just, it's fascinating because on, on a subconscious level, people just get it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's infuriating because you want to find the origin for things, don't you? Yes, exactly. And for so long, the discipline of folklore studies was about finding the origins of things, as though, yeah. as though the origin would give us the key to the real meaning or the real importance of a particular piece of folklore. And what we now realize is that the origins of any kind of folklore have very little to do with why we still say it now. We still say it now because of what it does for us communicatively, symbolically, metaphorically now. And that, so the the discipline of folklore studies has kind of gone down more of that maybe anthropological or sociological or even communicative path to, to study this stuff and sort of set aside the question of origins. Not that we're not still interested because we certainly are, um, but we see that, that the power of folklore is much more in its use than in its, you know, misty beginnings. And the, the study of folklore has, has changed and developed a lot over time. And at one point it was uh, very much corrupted. Uh, particularly with the Victorian collectors who, who corrupted an awful lot of folklore, either either intentionally or otherwise, in, in lots of different ways. But also it was lamented at times as well. In the 19th century, John Clare turned around and said, there is no more folklore. Folklore is dead. That's it. You know, people don't remember these old things anymore. Folklore's gone. Yep. That's not the case, is it? Obviously. No, not at all. And that's predicated... That, that idea that folklore is disappearing or has disappeared and we need to gather it up and put it in our archives and save it is predicated on the idea that folklore is by definition old, which it's not. It is by definition based on, on a pre-existing 
element, a precursor of some kind, because we see that traditional pattern of transmission that, that allows room for that dynamism and, and innovation as well. But it doesn't have to be old. And when folklore dies out, it kind of dies out for a reason. And this is one of the big things to understand about folklore is that by definition, folklore is the stuff that circulates without an institutional anchor. So nobody's testing us on it. The great works of literature, you want to graduate high school, you need to know some of them. They're going to test you on them. The rules of the road, how to drive a car, you want a driver's license, you're going to get tested on those. You need to know them. The content of urban legends, the folk beliefs about what you do when in a car. Do you hold your breath driving past a cemetery? Do you pick your feet up when you drive over a train track? Do you kiss your hand and hit the roof of the car when you drive through a yellow light? Nobody's testing us on that. And yet so many of us are familiar with these things that that's where we start to say, okay, why? Why are these persisting without that anchor of institution? And the reality is, is if they aren't doing anything for us anymore, if a legend or a story is totally irrelevant, it tends to drop out. We don't, we don't really pay attention to it anymore. But it's replaced. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, and and maybe it'll come back when we need it again and maybe it won't, who knows, but a lot of folklore does get sort of codified into literature or popular culture. So a Victorian salon writer will take an oral fairy tale and turn it into this sort of exquisite, uniquely crafted piece of literary work. And that is another node in the life cycle. And as literature works, it becomes copyrighted and sort of, you know, that's the, the end of that thread of transmission. But the story often will just happily persist in the oral tradition as well, mindless of the fact that it was, you know, pinned down and, and codified by a particular writer at a particular time. And this is a point I make as well when I, when I talk about folklore and, and, and comparing it to other disciplines and to, and to other practices is that if you compare it to um, something like parapsychology or, or the, um, the study of hauntings in, in, in a less formal way even, it's completely different because we're not looking necessarily at a scientific viewpoint. Um, for us as folklorists, we don't actually care whether things exist or not. What we're interested in is why people experience them and why they give the readings that they do. And that's what makes it such a rich area, isn't it? Exactly. And that setting aside of the question of reality, I'm not here to find out if Bigfoot is real. I'm here to find out why so many people are consistently invested in the possibility that he might be. Why do we report these experiences? Well, we see a lot of things we can't explain. Why do these stories resonate with us? Well, we have a lot of conflicting social, emotional relationships with the natural world. Bigfoot exemplifies a lot of that. The answer to that, why does this persist question, often has a lot of different overlapping answers. And that's where I really think that the wealth of of folkloric analysis comes into play. So I want to move on to the second definition in that case then. Okay, we've we've established, although a lot of us already knew, whether we thought we knew or not, actually, we did, what folklore is. Okay, so what is digital folklore? Ah, excellent. So digital folklore is all of that informal traditional stuff as it manifests through technologically mediated forms of communication. So basically, 
in some ways, it's exactly the same stuff. It's cultural forms, only our forms are a little bit bigger now. Suddenly our forms can be things like images, videos, memes, stuff that, that we can't produce as easily without technology. But stuff that, again, is being propagated, shared, perpetuated on that person-to-person level of culture. Only now, even that's made different because I not only can tell my friend a joke, I can broadcast it on social media, on YouTube. I can So my, my range of audience members is so much bigger, but we still see that element of dynamism and informality there. So in some ways, digital folklore is exactly like analog folklore but in a digital context, but that digital context opens so many new doors that we do see a lot of new possibilities that sometimes make it look like a whole different animal. Why is this so controversial? Why do some people not accept that? Because there is a distinction between something like digital folklore and something like pop culture, for example. You know, the distinction is in the transmission, isn't it? Whether it's one-to-one, one-to-many. Um, but but why do some people struggle to accept digital folklore as a thing, not even a discipline, just an entity? Yeah, I think there's two main reasons. And I just want to speak first to your point about popular culture. There is a difference between digital folklore and popular culture. And yes, that transmission of one-to-one versus one-to-many is a, is a key part of it, but also who's in charge. You know, I don't need to be an executive producer or a marketing director to have access to the stuff of digital folklore, to promote it, or even to broadcast it to however many followers or interested parties there are. Um, so we see in it a real of the people culture, a real grassroots nature that popular culture, mass media doesn't have. You, you sort of have to have, you know, <laughs> producers, advertising funds to operate on that more established mass cultural level. But yeah, people push back against digital culture. I think one, because of the basic fallacy that folklore has to be old. This is something that a lot of people, they hear the word folklore, they think the past, they think grandparents, great grandparents, maybe even going dating back into antiquity. They think rural, rustic, illiterate, pre-technological culture. And that is a stereotype of folklore that people have that's hard to push against. In some of my intro to folklore classes, I go through the whole rigmarole of what folklore is, and it's more contemporary than you expect, and it's not defined by age, it's defined by these these joint qualities of dynamism and traditionality, and the students are nodding along, and then when they get their first quiz and I say, how do we define folklore in this class, they say, old stories told around the campfire. And I'm sort of like, yikes, that is a hard stereotype to break. Yeah. Old stories told around a campfire are folklore because they're dynamic and traditional and circulate in this word of mouth culture, not because they're old and told around a campfire. So I think there's that, that, that digital folklore has going against it. But I also think that some people, certainly not everyone, but some people see a dehumanizing quality to mediated communication or to technology that um, the internet is somehow homogenizing or removing cultural idiosyncrasies or, or meanings in a way that they don't like. And so there's, and, and some folklorists had this fear at the dawn of the internet that in copy and paste culture, we would lose that dynamism, that, that informality that makes folklore so unique and variable. And we didn't. 
we could copy and paste everything we want on the internet and we don't. We rewrite, we recreate, we regenerate, we eco-typify and we leave it with that dynamism. And, and that surprised even folklorists. And I think it's something that when people start getting into digital folklore, they start to gain a real appreciation of. So I'm going to focus on some areas of, of digital culture that, that most definitely fall within the realms of digital folklore. Um, and, and I'm sure you'll have some others to add as we go along uh, and see if we can't make a case for, for these things actually <laughs> being part of folklore as, as a whole genre. So you mentioned the copy and paste culture. So let's start with that. Okay. So, so the copy and paste culture, which becomes known colloquially as copy pasta and then takes on a, hor- a horrific element and leads to the website creepypasta, which a lot of people know, um, for its transmission of supernatural, horrific, fictionalized accounts, which, which often then enter into our culture and become sometimes less fictionalized in people's minds as they go along. Let's start with that as an example of an area of digital folklore. Now, obviously, one of the ones which is best known, although we don't necessarily need to focus on this one completely, is the idea of Slenderman. And I don't want to go into too much detail because season one, episode one, the very first folklore podcast I did was an interview with Andrea Kitter about Slenderman, and all of the information is there, obviously. So take Slenderman as a construct. Is it folklore as a construct, or is it something else? It started as something else and then very quickly became folklore. Okay, describe that process first off then. This is actually a process we see happen a lot. Something can have its origins in popular culture and become adopted into folk culture, become taken from its popular origins and become something that we learn word of mouth. One of my favorite examples of this is the phrase, may the force be with you. Obviously that originated in mass media from George Lucas's Star Wars franchise. There are people who say that to each other who've never seen Star Wars. I mean, that is something that now circulates almost entirely colloquially. It's been decommodified from popular culture into folk culture with Slenderman, as with many creepypastas, we know the origin of it. The Something Awful web forums, a guy named Eric Knudsen under the screen name Victor Surge, created these two images that were part of a challenge to create paranormal images. That's where it began. And those two images were so well done and and tapped into so many essential parts of our psyche. This is a very rare phenomenon. It usually takes a lot of communal shaping for something to really latch to a communal psyche that quickly, but he hit the nail on the head. And from that moment on, other people join in. It becomes collaborative. So now we've moved from maybe what might be considered 
an art project or even a literary creation, we've got more of this collaborative art thing going and other people are writing backstories and trying their hand at, you know, creating imagery and photographs. And then people are filling in a history and they're adding Slender Man in very skillfully and artfully into cave paintings and pictographs. And we're getting old Romanian fairy tales that appear to be speaking about a Slender Man-like character. And this mythos, that's mythos with a capital M, starts to grow and develop until it's detached from its origination. It's detached from any single individual creator and it becomes this collective dynamic shared via word of mouth form of cultural expression, at which point it's folklore, undeniably. Another example of that probably from more recent times as well, which which drove me mad for quite a while was the whole Momo case. Ah. And that's really interesting because, because, um, you know, it started out as a piece of artwork um, and then became many other things as the whole kind of rumor mongering took place, you know, and I, and I had, um, you know, warnings from my daughter's school about it and, and various things on the, I, I, I spent so long answering things on the internet. Often people go, no, you don't get this. This is not what's happening. In the end, it's just like, do you know what? I give up. <laughs> I'm never going to get through this. I, I let it run its course. But it is, it's, I mean, it's almost akin to a moral panic. Something like Momo happens. Most people hear of it first as this WhatsApp suicide challenge is, is how it is unfortunately described often that you text this phone number, you start getting some messages, it starts instigating some dangerous or negative behaviors, the end result being some extreme form of self-harm. And there's this terrifying visual image of this bird woman affixed to this, and she becomes understood as this Momo character. And then we see it immediately just take off and it bursts into popular culture. Suddenly YouTube videos of Peppa Pig are being accused of spreading the the Momo virus or meme among our children and threatening their safety and people are canceling Peppa Pig and deleting YouTube from their phones. And in reality, any actual video footage that we have of Momo appearing in an episode of Peppa Pig was retrofitted after the first instance of that legend. So it's all what folklorists would call ostension, the acting out, the copycatting of a legend. None of it is originated in any of this actually happening. But what does it tell us? It tells us what we're worried about. We are freaked out about what the internet and what digital technology can do for our kids. Um, Legend scholar Linda Digg, an amazing woman, um, said about legends once, and this is one of my favorite quotes. She said, legends can be true or legends can be false, but legends are always right. Meaning they're always getting something right about us. They're articulating something that we find important or meaningful or distressing. And that's the job of a folklorist is to look at these legends and say, okay, whether it's true or false, I mean, I should find out that's important, but what's it getting right? What is this articulating? And what does that tell me about us right now? It's difficult, isn't it, though, to try and establish whether these things are true or false, because often they'll start off being false. And then through a process of ostension, they'll become true. And the Peppa Pig one is a fine example. I mean, would the Momo panic have been anywhere near as widespread as it was without that image 
attached to it. No, no, it would not. That image is so evocative and, and taps into a lot of classical mythology images of harpies, right? The, the bird woman, I think is something that we all can have sort of an immediate reaction to. And that adds the emotional weight to the narrative that comes along with it. And I do think that that plausibility is what narratives thrive on, not just narratives, but legends. If we knew for a fact, incontrovertibly, if something were true or false, that's usually when we stop talking about it. It's the ambiguity, that question of possibility that really keeps legends going. And we see that with Slenderman, we see that with Momo. And oftentimes I'll tell my students maybe a classic urban legend and say, you know, it never happened. And they'll say, but it could. What if someone heard the legend and decides to try it out? And I always have to be like, oh, okay, touche. Good point. So the warnings are still apt as long as the, the legend is speaking to a thing we think it is worthwhile to be nervous about. It's probably not going to die out. That's key, isn't it? It plays to our fears. Now, now sometimes that might be through imagery. Momo is a good example of that. That played to the fears of children purely through the image before any of the suicide game aspect was really even attached to it. It was just that evocative image, as you say, which which became so important. But then it plays to our fears in other ways. And, and actually the suicide game legends uh, work on another level in that, in that way, don't they? The blue whale challenge is another key one one that quite a few people uh ben radford who's been on the podcast a couple of times has done a lot of work on the blue whale challenge as well um and the blue whale challenge predated the momo challenge and i think provided that template of the concept of a suicide challenge which speaks to a lot of issues that we do contend with through mm-hmm. mediated communication things like anonymity we don't always know if the people we are communicating with through technology are who they say they are. The idea that we might be getting text messages from an unknown person, from a bad actor, someone looking to, to get us somehow is not an illegitimate concern. There are real scams, telephone scams, email scams, phishing scams. These are things that happen. So the fear isn't unfounded. We just tend to latch on to these overly symbolic ways of addressing those fears because they make them a little bit more simple. What's the solution? Ban Peppa Pig. What's the solution? Don't let your kids say the name Momo. Um, And we know that's not the solution. The solution is often much more nuanced and difficult and time consuming, but it, it comforts us to think that there's a really clear cut explanation for what's going on, even when that clear cut explanation is something we can't control. Yeah, and, it, and it's so difficult, isn't it, to, to make these distinctions because uh, they're, they're, they're often so plausible. And you know, the Blue Whale Challenge is very plausible and is one of those things that probably could, if it hasn't gone on to become an actual thing in, in some cases. But the origin of it, if it isn't true, then it becomes very difficult to pin that down and, and prove that it's not because it's playing on those fears, isn't it? Of uh, well, what if somebody is taken in by it? What are the end results of that? Well, they're the worst thing you could possibly imagine. And in a sense, in in a quite a dire way, we see what amounts to the blue whale challenge acted out. People don't often commit suicide in a vacuum. They're mm-hmm. 
there are social influences. There is bullying. There is stuff that happens in people's lives that lead them down this path. Now, is it a mysterious figure sending them text messages, asking them to step up different levels of self-harm? No, but does it perhaps feel in some people's lives as though people around them are encouraging them to harm themselves? Probably. That's probably an accurate perception in, in the ways that folklore often is articulating real things in symbolic ways. I think that Slenderman does that, actually. I think the fact that he wears a suit, that he looks fairly corporate, fairly genteel, that he's often depicted with a tie and this faceless demeanor, I think we have a great representation of sort of the all-seeing eye of technology, you know, Amazon.com, the cookies on my computer. Those things are benign seeming. They are sort of business-like. And what do they do? They watch. They watch us all the time. It's sort of this faceless corporate observation. And in a lot of ways, that's what Slender Man is doing. And who's he watching? Our kids. That's the scariest thing we can think of. And I think there's a real powerful visual articulation of a deep-seated social anxiety being articulated there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But we're okay because my Alexa is downstairs and can't hear what we're talking about at the moment. So that's good. Okay. My my Google is right here and she's hearing everything. So sorry. <laughs> oh, well, it's a, it's a, one side or the other gets it every time. Some, sometimes these things start off as analog folklore and become digital later on, of course, don't they? Uh, and you kind of alluded to one or two examples uh, there. Chain letters, mm-hmm. for example. There, there's an example of something which... If in the analog realm, you would definitely class as folklore, whether whether it's the kind of pass this on to nine other people, otherwise something horrendous will happen, whether it's, uh, you know, Craig is suffering from cancer and wants a hundred birthday cards before and... And then you know, Craig was a real person. That, that was an actual thing that happened. Yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah, and and absolutely, this is such a common thing. Folklore finds a way is really the way I like to think of it, whatever means we have at our disposal, whether that's the postal postal system or the internet, we will use to promote the things that we find worth promoting. And we clearly find chain letters worth promoting. One of my favorite joking meta commentaries on internet culture is a meme that goes around that's just a picture of a tombstone. And on it, it says, didn't forward that text message to 10 people. And I love that commentary that I remember the paper text message or paper chain letters from my childhood that had these dire threats of, if you do not do this, you're going to experience bad luck within two weeks. It's just more efficient to send that out via email. It makes perfect sense that it would happen that way. And this is a distinction I actually like to make. Um, We see analog folklore show up on the internet in two different ways. And one is as living folklore, meaning it is using the internet as a means of transmission. The other way, though, is that we really do see it being sort of archived and collected and documented. So we have entire websites dedicated to worldwide wedding customs. We have websites that archive fairy tales. They're not doing the work of sharing that folklore as everyday vernacular communication, but they're doing the work of what an offline folklore archive would have done. And that's an incredible benefit, I think, that we see. But but I want to clarify that distinction. There is folklore online that is not living folklore in the sense of it's not 
a part of this great game of telephone that we all play when we share this information. It doesn't negate its value as folklore or the value of the internet as an archive. It's just different when we identify the internet as the actual transmission mechanism. And I want to come back to that point about collection and about archiving later on uh, from digital terms, because it's it's a problematic area for folklorists in in some ways and i'll come back to that in a while um another area which is particularly rich online both as living folklore actually and as archiving of digital folklore is urban legends which you which you've already touched on you know we we see it all the time in terms of living folklore uh, and we see it with with great sites like Snopes and Hoax Slayer for for the archiving of these stories as well. And of course, urban legends are you know they're they're much older than anything that the digital world can throw at us, aren't they? Yeah, so I I remember hearing versions of it, well not Kentucky Fried Rat but but similar uh, fried chicken related stories when I was uh, working in a secondary school when I was in my twenties. I remember hearing all sorts of different urban legends told as true as folklore, friend of a friend law by, by many people. Um, and now they just circulate in a different way, don't they? Talk, talk a little bit about how urban legends thrive online. Yeah. So urban legends are, in fact, one of the first offline genres of folklore that folklore started finding online. Urban legends and jokes are really two of the forms of folklore that most folklorists identified online which is so interesting because it's left the discipline with a whole bunch of scholars who are both legend scholars and digital folklore scholars. That's how significant the overlap is. Um, But yes, urban legends long predate the internet. There's a fantastic study that was done on a legend type known as the improved product, which in recent years is told about a car that runs on water where a person is usually like seen filling up their car's gas tank with water and then someone drops in some pellets and then drives away. And then later the person who was witnessed doing that is found dead. And the assumption is that, you know, the oil industry took them out lest they, you know, find a revolutionary product that would render oil sales moot. Um, That story has been found in ancient Rome being told about unbreakable glass. Someone brings to the emperor a glass cup and he throws it on the ground and it dents and he hammers out the dent rather than it shattering. And the emperor has him killed because nobody wants what is considered a great source of wealth to really be changed. It's this, it's sort of this conspiracy thinking anti-progress legend, but we have that story. Some, again, we recognize it as the same, even though unbreakable glass and cars that run on water are very different. 2,000 years apart, we have these stories being told. So yes, urban legends wildly predate the internet, but what the internet provided was just a fabulous context in which to spread them even more widely and even more quickly. And we get to add in images. So suddenly we get this world of visual legends where doctored photographs, one that I often go back to in my mind, um, Russell Frank is a folklorist who wrote a great book called News Lore, and he includes a picture, very doctored, but um, during the Hurricane Katrina floods, someone started circulating a picture of um, George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush, two presidents of the United States, fishing as though they're out on a pleasure cruise in the floodwaters of Hurricane Katrina, just 
I mean, perfectly encapsulating the sense of disconnect between the leaders of a country and the people of the country who are suffering due to a natural disaster. And there's, there was no narrative that went with it necessarily, but that image itself functioned as such a successful legend, this articulation of what people feared was the case in that country, um, I think was really poignant. So the internet was basically just waiting for, for urban legends to show yeah. up. Do you think it's the case as well? Now, I mean, we, uh, we, we don't do politics on this podcast it doesn't particularly have a place here but we have to look at it in some kind of framing context and say so so has the last four years for example in the states meant that things like the spread of urban legends or fake law has increased or or come about in a different way because of the situation which the country found itself in generally? Yes. So we have seen a huge upswing in political legends, rumors, conspiracy theories, as people seek to make meaning. That's what legend spread is, is an attempt to make sense of ambiguous but important information. The less information we have, but the more important we know it is, the more we're going to spread legends and rumors about anything. So absolutely, we've seen a huge upswing. And that is a sign that people are trying to cope. But we also have this new, unique element as a part of it that we call fake news, that of course, folklorists would have called fake lore for a long time. It's an idea that has been around for a while. But we see it being maliciously deployed in new ways. And it's really changed the shape of the discipline of folklore studies since it happened because folklorists who used to be able to sort of be agnostic and set aside the question of truth or falsity in a legend and say, let's just look at why it's circulating. um, Suddenly it becomes quite important that we debunk things that are false, that we say, no, there are people being paid, malicious people are being paid to spread misinformation on the basis of it resonating the way legends do. So it it becomes a a malignant sort of speculation. And that, I think, is a direction that has been unique in the recent past and that folklorists are are going to have a lot to contribute to. But how is that different to analogue versions such as World War II propaganda, for example, or ancient Rome stories? Yes, it's not, actually. But what it does is reach farther move faster, and potentially look more authoritative. So with all this form of communication, these vernacular forms of communication, the authority in them, it's a, it's a great trick. The authority in them is the authority of our interpersonal relationships. So I don't have to rely on a news outlet to give me this information and, and decide whether or not I trust that news outlet. It's information that's coming to me from my family from my friends, but it's coming to me with the double authority of, oh, it looks like a news report. It looks legitimate. It has, you know, we've always attributed mass media as something that is somewhat inherently peer reviewed or fact checked. Not anymore. We can all produce something that looks like a newspaper now. So the digital context hasn't created something new. It's just made a pre-existing thing more powerful. And that's what we're left contending with. 
I'm going to move on to another area which you've mentioned already very briefly, but we haven't covered yet, which is very definitely a part of digital folklore in a way that it could never really have been a part of analogue folklore, and that's memes. Mm. Can you define what we mean by that term as folklorists first off? Yes, I, I like that you ask, can we define what we mean as folklorists? Because there's memes and then there's memes. Yeah. And the, the concept of meme originated before the internet was widely predominant as a means of communication with the uh, evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins in 1976. And I give this definition first just because I think it contextualizes the way we use it now. He identified memes as units of cultural transmission. And he meant that as anything from a snippet of a tune to a fashion trend to a particular story that gets told, kind of anything that, that, that leaps from mind to mind the way that genetic transmission leaps from gene pool to gene pool. What he really tapped into was the idea that this operates on the same principle as genetic transmission, meaning um, survival of the fittest. So the memes that fit best in their cultural context are the memes that are going to propagate and flourish. The term meme was actually adopted not by scholars, but by everyday users of the internet to describe their own visual content. So we have in our minds this image, a square picture with white, bold, impact font text on it. That's what most people think of when they think of internet meme. Before those were called memes, they were called image macros. And this was early on in the internet before everyone, as we think of it, though we know there is still a digital divide and there are many people not online, but in a time before most people were understood to be online, these circulated um, often pictures of animals with sort of funny text on them. And the term meme, internet meme was adopted as this cultural replicator. People familiar with Dawkins' work said, I want to call it this. And it turned out to be an unbelievably accurate descriptor because memes by definition function the way folklore do. They evolve, they change. There's no single right version. Sure, we may know what the original is, but the original sort of doesn't matter. What matters is the way I've adapted it to communicate in my immediate current context. And in fact, how a meme looks has changed as well, hasn't it, over time? I mean, I, I am going to call this episode, if you're listening to it, I have called this episode Bernie's Mittens. Nice. Okay. Uh, and the reason for that is that obviously one of the most recent fast spreading memes that we've seen since the presidential inauguration is Bernie sitting on his chair with his big mittens on and his mask. And now he crops up all over the place. Um, Everywhere. Now there are apps where you can go on Google Maps, find your home and sit him in front of it. In the yeah. But no text. There's no impact font. There's no, there's no meaning ascribed to that meme is that it's just humorous imagery why is it still a meme because of the way that it transmits yes exactly so this interestingly shift in memes from sort of that initial what did it mean it meant a picture with white impact font on it the shift now has actually taken us back closer to the original definition of meme which is a unit of cultural transmission bernie's mittens means something to people, whether it means the end of a tumultuous political era, whether it means the 
staunch grumpiness of an old guy who has to be an event that he doesn't want to be at, whatever it means for someone, this image captured people's attention. And we see now that for whatever reason, it fits. It fits right now. Bernie in those mittens, arms crossed. I've seen it in my own neighborhood as a snowman. I've seen it in visual images. I've seen it combined with the new sea shanty TikTok trends so that someone has photoshopped four different Bernies all harmonizing together to sing the Wellerman. I mean, this is a real shared moment. And what this does is highlights in many ways, one of the big values of internet folklore, which is not so much to be found in the content as it is to be found in the shared transmission process. Now, this isn't always the case. Some memes are making very poignant, very significant commentary with their content. But sometimes it's more in the cultural knowledge, the traditional competency of getting it. I know what that is. I recognize that. That's Bernie Sanders. He's sat all grumpy with his mittens on. And now we put that in different pictures. I'm a part of this chain of understanding. This is something that folklorist Trevor Blank has called um, like your cultural inventory, basically meaning our repertoire, but as opposed to maybe in the past where your repertoire was a set of stories or songs you knew, now it's a set of cultural references. It's these pieces of memes that we can put together and use to communicate with people who have similar cultural inventories to us. And where, but it's where memes work best, I think, isn't it? Is in that kind of entertaining, humorous side. You know, it's George Washington shouting, Martha! text interposed on top of old artwork whether it's bernie in his mittens you know those, those and and this is the complete antithesis isn't it of the the use of imagery in something like momo um this this is more i don't it's a feeling of togetherness isn't it it's it's community transmission it's bringing people together in, in a common way for entertainment purposes or just to make people feel that they belong. Yes, exactly. That sense of having insider knowledge, of being in on a joke. I mean, this is a major way that throughout time, pre-internet, we've always shaped and understood our own identities in terms of who, with whom do I affiliate? Do I get the folk speech, the vernacular lingo of this group or this group? And that tells us that we're members of that group. And this was actually something that I wrote about, I'm sure you will remember the very popular internet meme from, I believe, 2015. So a while ago now, the dress, the dress that looked white and gold to some people and blue and black to others and was a legitimate sort of optical phenomenon that we all got to learn about thinking our friends were trying to trick us. I mean, we don't often get confronted with unexpected random examples of the fact that, that the you know, physiology of vision works differently for different people. But on that same day that the dress boomed, another internet meme happened, which was that a black and white llama in um, Arizona escaped and ran around town and gave the people trying to capture them a great wild chase. And people were glued to their computers watching these two llamas escape capture. Somehow the dress and the llamas were just linked in people's minds as the absurdity of that day on the internet and people began producing all of this folk art of a black llama and a white llama wearing dresses that were either blue and black or white and gold. Now, do we want to read anything into the content 
of that folk art? No. I mean, we could get all Freudian and make a lot of input what the llamas traditionally meant symbolically and all of this stuff. And what does it mean that these llamas appear to be cross-dressing or anything like that? That's beside the point. What this was, was a moment where people could say, hey, we are all experiencing this absurdity together. And it really became strangely this markers of a shared moment in time. Wow, the internet is weird. Let's all embrace each other. We, we all get it. So that you see a picture of a llama wearing a dress and you're like, hey, I know what that's talking about. And that sense of, of connection and togetherness really is, I think, one of the, the biggest upsides that we have to digital folklore. And then we saw the dress thing all over again in auditory form, didn't we, with the whole Laurel one? Um, Laurel and Yanny. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I don't know about you. I could hear both Laurel and Yanny. For me, it was depending on how far from my head the phone was. I can only see the dress as white and gold. I can't see it. And it, it is. The dress is blue and black mm. in, in reality. And I'm really sad. I don't have the ability to. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And I wonder whether whether the difference with the Laurel Yanni meme is that it works in a similar way to something like electronic voice phenomena, where when you know what you're supposed to be hearing, you'll hear it. And even if you hear one thing and then somebody says, but if you listen again, it will sound like it says Laurel. And then you listen and you're expecting that. And, and, but your your vision doesn't work in quite the same way. It's processed differently, isn't it? I wonder whether it comes down to something, looking at it from a, a boring scientific <laughs> standpoint, whether it comes down to something like that. It really might. And and that, that whole phenomenon, pareidolia is the word, where we try and find sense in nonsense, you know, in abstract stimuli, we look for sounds we recognize. I mean, most people when listening to EVP or spirit boxes hear their own name first because it's one of the sound sets that we are most primed to hear. It's how we look at clouds and see dragons or sailing ships in them. We look for familiar structure and form in all of our sensory input, basically. So yeah, I think that absolutely is a big portion of this. What are we being? And then when someone points to a cloud and says, don't you see the dragon? And suddenly you see it. I think we do see some of that phenomenon there as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, before we move on to just, just touch briefly on the whole kind of collection aspect and that we, we've, we've looked at kind of creepy pastors uh, and urban legends and those kinds of constructs. And we, and we've looked at meme transmission is there anything else you want to add to that in the digital folklore realm as being something that we should be considering? You mean before moving on to the idea of collection or related yes. to the idea? Yeah, well, well either, either way. Before we move on, if, but the, then you can segue into it if you want to. Now let's move on. Okay. <laughs> so collecting analogue folklore was a thing that happened in a very kind of set way. Collecting Digital folklore is a whole different ball game, isn't it? How do people go about doing that? This is a this is a tricky thing because one of the perspectives that the internet gives us is the suggestion, and it does not turn out to be totally accurate, that we don't even need to intentionally collect anything anymore. The internet has been described as self-archiving. 
in that the act of communicating on the internet is also the act of preservation in many cases. So if I engage in a conversation in a web forum, if that web forum still exists, I can go back five years later and find that exact conversation now as an artifact rather than an interaction. And I can still see it and understand it and it might be searchable and I can find my own sentences from five years ago by Googling them. But what it actually turns out is that the internet is self-archiving in sort of the way a landfill is self-archiving, as in it's all in there, but it's really undifferentiated and it degrades over time. So we get things like link rot and forums go away and websites get deleted and that content isn't there anymore. And so the old work, what we usually think of as almost antiquarian work of gathering these things up becomes really important again. Now, archiving folklore has always been an unfortunately partial endeavor. There is so much more folklore than we can capture and we risk skewing the record of the folklore of the past by what we collect in the present. But does that mean it's not worth collecting it? No. Does that mean that the affordances of digital technology don't make it better? I mean, no, we, the internet is an ideal tool in many ways for documenting folklore. One interesting side effect that I always think of with this is thinking of those two ways the internet contains folklore, both it is the tool of transmission, it is also a repository, actually came up in the debate about which of the saints was going to end up being the patron saint of the internet. And it came down to Isidore or Claire, St. Isidore of Seville, is the saint of encyclopedias. And Claire, of course, is the patron saint of television. And the decision, interestingly, was made in the 1990s, which meant that Isidore won. Isidore of Seville is the patron saint of the internet because the internet was understood as a repository of information more than a tool of distanced communication when that was decided in the 90s. I think we would all agree now that Claire of Assisi, patron saint of television, should be the patron saint of the internet. The internet is much more like TV than like an encyclopedia, I think, in most people's experience of it now. But it's interesting to think that, that already those two modes were being identified as key and also just that fun folkloric element of who gets to be patron saint of the internet. <laughs> I think there's probably more than one now, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure there probably is. I, you could argue, I suppose that, that actually these things never truly go away because it, 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 through mechanisms such as uh, the Wayback machine on archive.org, for example, then that self archiving of sites being captured before they die is still there. But, Going back to the whole kind of fake lore, urban legend aspect of digital folklore, have we got another concern here? Because I can digitize a 16th century pamphlet about folk medicine, Mm -hmm. and it's a true and complete record. In fact, I can archive the paper version, and it's a true and complete record if I can find one. Yeah. But I can go back and change something that was done on a forum five years ago if I'm a very clever coder and make it look like I was never there. So is it self-archiving? Do we trust that it's self-archiving? Or are we reading too much into this? I think I think we are probably in some ways reading too much into this in the sense that we put 
too much weight on the past staying the same, on the items from the past being a clear indicator of the reality of the past, whether they are tampered with or not. I think that we often forget in sort of the excitement of archiving and preserving and documenting that in so many ways, the import of these things is in their use. The example I always use with students is that, you know, I can write down the words of a joke that I do not find funny and I can label it joke and put it in the folklore archives. And if someone a hundred years from now shows up in those archives and reads that, they will think, oh, I guess she thought that was funny because I labeled it a joke (laughs) and I wrote down the words of it. So the meaning of a piece of folklore is not simply in its text. It's also in its context, its texture. So to really document that joke, I would need to write down where I heard it and how I felt about it. And I would want it documented what my body posture was and my facial expression and my speech and tone as I told that joke. You know, you know when someone's telling you a joke that they find horribly offensive. And that wildly alters the importance, the cultural meaning of that joke. And those are all non-textual cues. So the, the documentation of folklore has always had to contend with this text versus context and texture sort of idea. One interesting thing about the internet is that oftentimes that texture and that context is preserved along with the text. Not always, but sometimes. And that's a you know, it's all, it's all a give and take. We, we, we try and remember that we were never able to access the totality of cultural expressions even before the internet, and we are still not able to now. I think another area where, where archiving is difficult, or it's not difficult, it's actually quite easy, but problematic is a better term. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something that we come across and we discuss as folklorists all the time when we're dealing with a range of materials, paper archives, books, the internet, is how should we be archiving now? Because electronic archiving is far from robust and far from future-proof in the way that books and paper archives are not those things. You could argue they're not robust, perhaps. They can be conserved. Um, but the, And you can say, okay, you know, but you can digitise them. Yeah, but then what do you do with it when it's been digitised? You know, how does it become future-proof? Things have got a little better with the advent of decent cloud storage for backup, but there are so many folklorists that have electronic archives on a hard drive, on a USB stick down the back of the sofa, whatever. How should we be archiving 21st century folklore? Oh my goodness. As many ways as possible is really what it comes down to. That that, And I know that that's a, a, def, a self-defeating statement sometimes, but I try and capture screen captures. They're static. They're still, they deny the dynamism of a lot of things, but often it's the best way to capture a moment a slice of life. I think also a major element of this is being honest with ourselves about the limitations of ethnography. We are not ever capturing the totality of a culture, whether that's a small digital folk group or a nation or an ethnicity. We are never capturing the objective totality of people when we do ethnographic work. It's always a slice of life, a piece of the lived experience and recognizing that inherent partiality 
sets us up to not over attribute what we are able to capture. And I think a big part of it then is recognizing the value in capturing that partiality in, in crowdsourcing, in saying, Hey, share with us the content that you are finding meaningful. I, work with the Digital Folklore Project at Utah State University. And this is a big thing that we do. We track digital trends and we rely on other people to be, you know, tweeting and sharing and spreading the trends that they find culturally significant so that they can come across our laptops or our phones so that we can make sure they get into our archive. Is it in some ways just an unbelievably small piece of a bigger picture? Yes, is it still worthwhile to document? Absolutely, yes. Yes, of course it is. If we had the equivalent slice of daily life ethnographically documented from 1,000 years ago, we would be giddy with joy at what we would be able to learn from that. So thinking in those terms, the technology we're using right now is one day going to be some future person's wax cylinder inaccessible, containing data that they can't comprehend. And we have to hope that the intervening years led to someone valuing the upkeep, transitioning from a wax cylinder to a reel-to-reel, to a cassette, to a digital recording, to cloud storage. We have to hope that our wax cylinder content is still accessible in the future. And so we gamely, we gamely produce them and we do our best to work with digital archivists, which is a booming field right now. Anyone interested in folklore should also be taking an interest in digital archiving. In that is the best hope that we will be able to share those little slices of our everyday lives with future people. Thank you. I hope that we've managed to make a case for digital folklore being a legitimate area of folklore study. I feel that we have. Uh, You have to. Uh, in the same way that any good conspiracy theory will have believers and disbelievers, this will undoubtedly have the same. But I think we've made a pretty strong case. So final question. Where do you think digital folklore will go now? I think that digital folklore is going to, one, become much more mainstreamed. I think it's going to help people find and discover folklore as maybe this larger body of culture than they previously understood it to be. And I think... It's going to become much more key to our understandings of interpersonal communication. Once we really start to get the word out there, which your podcast is doing awesomely and thank you, and which the efforts of many, many folklorists and folklore enthusiasts on social media is doing, the more that awareness grows of one, this is folklore, and two, Like all folklore, it is valuable and important to study, even in its apparent mundanity or triviality. That message, I think, really stands to help folklore be better documented, better analyzed, and therefore better utilized as a means of better understanding the human condition. But I'm an optimist, so I don't know. (laughs) Let's let's see if you're right. Uh, for now, we'll leave it there. Lynn, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and talk to us today. Uh, if people want to find out more about what you do, where is a good place for them to do that? Um, I'm on Twitter at Lynn S. McNeil, L-Y-N-N-E-S-M-C-N-E-I-L-L. Or I would certainly recommend for anyone interested in a short, quick and easy read about folklore, Folklore Rules is a great starting point. Perfect. I should put links to those 
things in all of the places where links normally go. Uh, in the meantime, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It has been delightful. My thanks to Lynn for a fascinating discussion on the topic of digital folklore. What do you think on the subject? Tweet us in a digital folklore kind of way on Twitter at FolklorePod and let us know. Or post on our Facebook discussion group. Coming up in just a moment, a piece of music to close this week's programme from a new guest musician. But first, don't forget that the Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to for as long as we can keep going. But it is a costly business and we rely on your support to be able to keep making content. Do please consider signing up to our Patreon for as little as a dollar a month, where you'll get extra exclusive content. Or visit our website and send us a donation via the link on the front page. Without your support, we would not still be here. In the next episode of the podcast, I'll be speaking to the writer and presenter of the BBC Radio 4 series The Battersea Poltergeist, Danny Robbins, about this long-running poltergeist case from the 1950s and how he came to access the archive of original documents to be able to put the show together. Our new featured musician is Helen Bell, and I'll link to her work on the Folklore Podcast website for anyone who enjoys this and wants to find out more. I'll be featuring more recordings from Helen in future episodes, but in the meantime, to close today, here is the track Beetle Shell. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Blue fire.